Another day Another dollar Makes you wonder where your money went You can scream Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast As always, what man to do the changing matter. world, the changing times And the things that we can all do to live a better life If times get tough or even if they don't dictate it, it is almost always the case during my 50-mile commute between Arlington and Frisco, Texas. Today is uh, November the 10th, 2009, which means tomorrow we'll be pausing to take a look at Veterans Day and what it means to us in this great country and across the world, honestly. Um, but until then, we're going to rock on with another episode of the Survival Podcast. And today's episode is 314, and it's going to be called Bug-In Planning. I, I, I just stopped and I thought about this, folks, and I realized that over you know the year and a half now that I've been doing the Survival Podcast, um, We've talked a lot about do we bug in or do we bug out and how we make that decision. We've talked a lot about prepping the bug out. We've never really talked directly about planning for bugging in and what to do once you have to bug in. Now, we've talked about it in general generalities, you know, over and over again. Because all the things we talk about doing uh, are what allow you to bug in. But we're going to talk about it specifically today. Before that, i got some housekeeping. Number one, thank you, thank you, thank you. You guys rock so hard. Um, a few weeks ago, somebody nominated TSP for the Podcast of the Year Awards and decided to go for People's Choice in the general category. We didn't make it as a finalist for People's Choice. We did make it into the top ten for the general category. What that means is that starting November 13th, you guys can start voting. You can vote once a day for me. And the more votes we get, and we have all the way to the end of the year to do this, um, the better we're gonna, the, the better chance we have of actually winning. We're up against some pretty big shows, um, but here's the cool part. Most of the shows that are, that are nominated have been like working all year to get nominated. We only hit it for like the last two weeks and we got in the door. That tells me we can win. I'm probably gonna set up a little email list, like an auto email list, that'll, like you put your name and your email in it, it'll email you every day, and it'll just say, remember to vote today, with a link, and that's all it'll be, and then at the end of the year, it'll go away, I know a lot of people don't like more emails, but if you really want to be dedicated and help me do this thing, and you think TSP deserves to win, that would be a way to do it, so just want to let you know that today, can't vote yet, can't start voting till the 13th, I'll set up some way to help people easily vote, alright, next, uh, make sure you're taking care of our sponsors, they do a lot to keep the show running, uh, sponsor of the day, number one, ready-made resources, Really cool stuff, really cool solar, alternative energy, um, appliances that run at 12 volts, uh, all kinds of cool stuff at ready-made resources. Check it out. Sponsor of the day, number two, Sawtooth Tactical. They should call themselves Sawtooth Tactical. Really cool tactical stuff. That part of you that, that loves the cool tactical stuff will have a great time browsing the Sawtooth Tactical website. So check that out. Next, get involved with our forum. Um, the forum was the primary catalyst toward getting the show nominated, which that's self-serving, I guess. But uh, it's also been the primary catalyst that's been having people put together small little get-togethers all over the country, trading massive amounts of information, inspiring each other, getting people to write books. I mean, it's amazing what's going on in our forum. Please get involved. Uh, next, uh, if you think the show's worth more than 20 cents an episode, uh, join the member support brigade. Uh, you'll help support the show, and you'll get exclusive content available only to members uh, at a contribution of $50 a year or $5 a month, whatever you're comfortable with. Uh, with that, the main part of the housekeeping's knocked out, but I have an announcement uh, it, that pertains to the Member Support Brigade, but it also affects everybody at the same time. Um, first and foremost, I was contacted yesterday by a guy who's a member of our forum and runs his own website, and I believe his own forum, on aquaponics. And uh, his name is Kevin Cuthbert. 
I hope that's right, Kevin. If I got your name right, wrong in pronunciation, I'm sorry. C-U-T-H-B-E-R-T. Well, who is he? Um, he's a gentleman from South Africa, part of our international listening audience. And he's authored two e-books that he sells on his website for $18. One is uh, on aquaponics, and the other one is on building a traditional clay oven. Uh, what I'm sure a lot of influence from uh, the South African area uh, and a lot of the wisdom that's there in these traditional methodologies. Now, these books sell on his website for 18 bucks. I'll put a link to his site. If you want to buy a copy of each, please do. Well worth the money. But if you're a member support brigade member, uh, yesterday I uploaded both of them to the uh, to the benefits page in the MSB, and they're both free. So there's another 36 bucks we just threw a value into the MSB, which brings me to the other side and the thing that affects everybody, uh, member or not. I've been putting uh, e- uh, videos here and there into the MSB. I've been putting them in a Windows media format. I've tried .mov. Uh, I've done them in MP4s. Uh, large resolution, small resolution. Never am I happy with the, the appearance of the small res that are reasonable size for downloads. And the big ones, the 620, um, just they just crush a download. Um, 300 megabits or more. So, uh, what I've made a decision is going forward, uh, I'm going to put almost every video that we do from now on on YouTube. If it's a, a instructional, a review, anything that's relatively, you know, 20 minutes or less. If it's 20 minutes, I have to break it into two pieces to fit it on YouTube's 10-minute limit and what have you. But I'm going to put it on YouTube. And the reason is, one, I want to share this stuff with everybody anyway. Two, I can put, upload very high-quality HD video there with all this new high-quality sound gear we have and everything. And you can watch it, you can view it, and uh, you'll be able to uh, to see it in its, its full uh, potential, so to speak, from any Internet connection. If people with slower connections aren't going to get crushed by downloads. Um, the other thing is I originally started putting the videos in the MSV because I wanted to increase its value. And, um, you know... I think we've got we've gotten there now, and we're going to continue to be adding things from third parties like ebooks, like discounts, like uh, free memberships elsewhere. And because of that, there's enough value there. The one thing I am going to try to continue to do is generate small small resolution MP4s of every video, except the reviews. I don't think you want to walk around with all my reviews on your iPod. And, I, and I'm going to put all those in the MSB uh, for a direct download of an MP4, which means you can download it to your computer, uh, you can watch it with the QuickTime player, and if you have an iPod, it'll be iPod compliant, ready to throw on the iPod. I'm going to do those in small resolution because they're primarily for iPod users, and your iPod screen just isn't that big. So that's a decision I made. It affects MSV, and it affects everybody else, because what that means is all the content going forward on the YouTube channel. So please subscribe to the YouTube channel. I know it took some extra time there, but hey, um, the addition of those two eBooks is huge, folks. They are awesome. Over 50 pages, 57 and 47 pages respectively I think I read the entire clay oven one last night sat out, had a couple beers uh, cooked some steaks on my grill and just thought man, I have got to build one of these very well done, beautiful books Um, again membership has its privileges there's another one so now let's start talking about you've made a decision to bug in and what are you going to have to deal with and what planning should you be doing in advance in case you make that decision to bug in Well, the first thing you should be thinking about won't really surprise you on the surface, but I'm going to get you to think a little bit deeper about it today. And that is storing food for everyone. Okay? And and what do I mean by everyone? I mean everyone. Hopefully I'm not about to get rear-ended by an idiot here. Ugh. Yeah, the traffic stopped. Getting in the other lane, you're going to go nowhere. Except, oh, you almost hit the guy in the next lane. The hazards of guerrilla podcasting. Anyway, folks, um, food for everyone. So what I mean by that is do you have pets? Do you have livestock? Uh, making sure you have enough food for everyone. If you have young children in the house that are still on baby food and formula, hopefully you're stocking up on that as well. And you're stocking up with an end in mind. And what I mean by that is, if you have a a, a six-month-old baby, and you kind of know the food transitions that child's going to make, the way that all that stuff stores, uh, so, well, you can pretty much buy them food right out to the point that they're eating solid food. You know know, every day how much you're going to feed them, what they're going to need as they eat 
across different age. So make sure you're planning because it doesn't make a lot of sense to stock up a massive amount of like baby food that's designed for babies that can't have real solids yet. And, you know, two months later, your kid's moving on to kind of more toddler foods. So think about that, but make sure there is food for those young children, formula, uh, baby food, that type of things. Um, next, the animals in your life are important to you. And it's, it's not a decision you're going to want to have to make to, to take the family dog out in the backyard and put a bullet in them because you don't really have another choice. And then anything else will be even more cruel than that. Um, dog kibble stores a very long time. It's very inexpensive. So if you have dogs, if you have cats, lots of food stored up for the animals. Now, let's talk about another type of cheap food storage uh, that can always be used in a pinch by yourself if you need it, but maybe would be the thing that could help keep your neighbors alive and make it where you don't have to point a gun at your neighbor and tell them to get out of your house. Uh, you can go out and buy a whole bunch of simple uh, corn, just dried corn. Uh, five or six five-gallon buckets of it, throw a pa- uh, uh, you know an oxygen, O2 pack in it, seal them up, throw them in a corner somewhere, in a garage, what have you, and, and have that. And um, maybe a couple cases, uh, you're, you're down, what, 20 bucks for two or three cases of ramen noodles, and put those aside, and put them somewhere where rodents won't get them, because the one thing about ramen is rodents like to chew it up. And if you get into a point where your neighbors are hungry, and it's going to be like, you, you, you believe there's a light at the end of the tunnel, we're going to rebound, it's a lot easier to send your neighbor away with uh, a couple cups of corn and maybe two packs of ramen and say, that's all I can spare. Because you don't want a war with your neighbors. All this bravado and all this bull crap about, you know, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll take mine, I'll get mine, I'll protect, you know, all this, all this stuff. Um, there, there might be an 82 year old lady that comes to your door that you've known for 20 years that lives in your neighborhood, and she's run out of food. Don't you want to help her a little bit? Now, the thing like handing out some ramen and, and some corn, uh, maybe you got a grinder, you grind the corn up for them in the cornmeal. They're only going to come back when they really need to. And uh, maybe they'll try to figure out some ways to help themselves. Uh, but I really believe that, especially if you live in a small town with a relatively small amount of neighbors, it's easier to feed your neighbors than to shoot them. And it's a hell of a lot more of your civic duty to feed them than to shoot them. Now, the, the reason that people stay away from this concept is they're afraid as soon as people find out that there's food here, they'll have a, they'll have a line around the corner, around the block, so to speak. Well, here's the thing. If you're feeding the people that are in the closest proximity to you, they now see you as a source of food and protection. Uh, They're going to keep their mouths shut because you're their source of food. So you would tell them, hey, look, you can't tell anybody that I have this here. And you show them a couple buckets of corn. This is all I got. I'm sharing a portion with you. They don't need to know what else you've stored. And you make your own decisions about what to share and when to share. But having that up front may quell a lot of problems. And if it's, let's, let's face it, folks, if it's a short-term disaster, if I don't think it's the end of the world as we know it, if there's been, a, let's say, a local power outage, we know why it happened, we know how it happened, we know how long it's going to be, roughly. It's, it's not the rest of the countries out of electricity. Uh, but the grocery stores are closed and people are hungry. Man, I'm pulling meat out of the the, the, the the deep freezer, and I'm throwing a barbecue in the backyard, and I'm using it as a bonding opportunity, and I'm using that as an opportunity to talk to my neighbors about preparation and say, look, here's a perfect example of why you should have been better prepared. And I'm helping them in that situation. And if you're going to bug in, let me be very clear, if you're going to bug in, you are going to have to deal with, work with, and account for the people that live close to you. They're not all just going to leave you alone. And you're, you, as, as someone who's understood the need to be prepared, have some level of a duty to your community to try to help where and as you can. Now, you can't go sacrificing your family to let, you know, it doesn't make sense for you to give away all you have, give the whole neighborhood 
three more days of sustainability, and then everybody goes hungry. So you have to think about it. But having some shareable storables that are low cost and not the greatest gruel in the world is one thing that you can do to help the people around you from starving to death. Hopefully you've been doing some things like scouting the area for edible plants. It might be a point where you start to organize and start saying, hey, look, there's food out here. I know where it is. Let me show you where it is so we can go get it together. And then you're helping people. You're teaching them a fish instead of handing them a fish. But you've got to be thinking about that in advance. You've got to have a plan for it in advance. And any belief that you have that if we really get to a point, where you can't go to the grocery store for two weeks or longer, that there won't be people in your neighborhood that are starving to death and need some help, that you may want to help, is a fantasy. Because it's going to happen. The next thing you really need to think about for bugging in, and it's something I always find interesting that when I talk to the press, they think it's funny that I do this. You need to have in your storage extra personal hygiene products. Extra toothpaste, extra soap, extra shampoo, extra deodorant for the women in the household, extra lady products. you got to have this stuff. Um, Say you have all the food in the world. But after a couple weeks, because you didn't store up any extra soap or shampoo, you're out of soap, shampoo, and toothpaste. you got a household with a couple teenage boys, maybe one young little girl, mom and dad, um, cooped up in the house together for a 90-day quarantine. Um, the last, um, everything after two weeks, they have plenty of food to eat. They're not starving. They have no soap. They have no shampoo. They have no deodorant, no lady products. Um, and they're worried about a disease. Can you imagine what that house will smell like? Even just you know taking basically water baths. Can you imagine what that house is going to smell like after six weeks like that? You got and that's only two months into it. You got another month to go. So you've got to think about those personal hygiene products. It's extremely important. It's also it's also one of those things that like a little goes a long way. I mean, um, one of those bricks with like nine bars of soap in it that lasts. It seems like it lasts forever. You know, even you take a shower every day. A big bottle of shampoo lasts a long time. Those may be also some things that you can give to a neighbor if you have some extra and we have kind of a light at the end. Anything other than that end of the world as we know it's scenario. Um, and it will help keep your neighborhood sanitary. So, again, you have to think about that. I also think you really need to be thinking in advance about backup power. Um, there's two main ways you do backup power as someone that's that's a prepper. One is the tried and true generator. Generators are for the price cheap and effective. And they work really well and they're very dependable. They have some disadvantages. They are only a short-term solution. Anything past two weeks, it's probably going to be very hard to store enough fuel uh, to keep a generator running that long, much longer. Um, another thing is noise. We've talked about dealing with neighbors, and that's one thing. But if you have a large neighborhood and you're the only person that has a gen set running, um, you're going to attack the attention of the entire neighborhood. And if it is a really big disaster uh, or a long-term issue, that's going to be a liability that you really don't want. Um, power's out for a couple days. Um because of a weather event. No problem. You know, some ass clown runs a truck and knocks down power lines and it's going to be out for 72 hours. Fire the generator up. That's what it's there for. Anything longer than that, you might have some issues. This is why I recommend at least two generators and one of them to be a small, quiet, 1K to 1,800 uh, kilowatt uh, generator capable of running a chest freezer. You can run that during the daytime when it doesn't attract as much attention uh, for a few hours a day and basically keep a chest freezer cold enough if you keep it closed and only open it while it's being run and keep meat frozen for weeks like that so it will extend that. It's quiet. 
And because it's quiet, it'll attract less attention for doing things like that. You can also use it to charge a battery backup system, running it only during the day and then using your battery backup system at night. A big generator, you know, something in the 4,500 to 6,500 kilowatt range, that can be hooked up with a with a breaker circuit off of your box on the side of your house and run critical systems in the house. And you can run that sucker again in those short-term acute disasters, and it's a very good thing to have. By having two, you have two ways to produce electricity, though. And you have one that sips gas and can be used for things, again, like charging battery backup systems, keeping uh, a chest freezer running, that type of thing and be quiet and give you better operational security in a bad situation. Um, The other side of this, though, is with that battery backup system, with a couple solar panels, you have the ability to generate electricity for almost all eternity, uh, or a wind generator. So I recommend people, even if you don't go to a point where you're producing the majority of, or even a, a major portion of your electricity in your house. You don't have a big, you know, whole array of solar panels on the roof or what have you. You know, a 50 to 100 watts of solar panels uh, going into a, uh, a battery box with maybe six batteries in it uh, hooked up to provide 12 volt power, uh, deep cycle, uh, that type of thing. You can't continuously run. But boy, you have a real source of backup power that's going to last a long time. Now, if you add a little wind turbine to that, you know, something like a 600-kilowatt wind turbine, you've really got something. And I think what you'll find is, in many instances, when the sun doesn't shine, it's when the wind blows the strongest. So those two technologies complement each other very well. I've always thought that one of the things that they should be doing when they're putting these giant wind turbines out there for commercial use is they've already got the space allocated, right? Uh, They've got these great huge towers all over. They've got electrical infrastructure in there. Why don't they put a bunch of solar panels on the tower facing the primary direction the sun comes from with trackers on them? How much extra power could they generate that way on days when the wind isn't blowing as hard? Uh, Or even if the wind is blowing hard, if it's a clear windy day. They've got everything in place. Now, go out and build giant towers like that just to put solar panels on them. That wouldn't make any sense. But if they're there anyway, it's almost retarded that these guys don't tie a solar system into that. So when you do it at home and you plan to bug in and you plan to stay put, make solar and wind a part of it, even if you're building a very low uh, low end, under $1,000, do-it-yourself system, you can provide an awful lot of utility. And again, if you add a small gen set to that, you really extend your capability a long way. Next, make plans to keep that garden going. Um, just because the shit is at the fan doesn't mean you, uh, you're no longer a gardener. In fact, now you're more of a gardener. A garden can provide a lot of additional food for you. Now, I've talked to some folks, and they think that that garden's a liability because people can see it. Folks, people see your house. People see you. We've already talked about the fact that you have to be prepared to deal with the people around you. You can either have more food and deal with the people around you, or you can have less food and deal with the people around you. It's your choice. I choose to have more food. The more food I have, the more personal sustainability I have, and the more ability I have to work with my neighbors to help them to push them towards some level of self-sufficiency. If we get to that end-of-the-world scenario, I don't want to be anywhere near a suburb with, you know, 10,000 or more people in it. I'm not going to be there. Um, I'm going to be in a much smaller community. I recommend that you have a plan to get yourself to some place like that in that end of the world scenario. I also say don't live your whole life based on it because odds are it's not going to eventually happen. It might. We have to be ready. But it's not the most likely scenario we're going to deal with. Again, we're more likely to deal with personal-level disasters, neighborhood-level disasters, and regional-level disasters if we prepare for them as well as we can before we move on in our preps, we'll discover that we're about as prepared as we can be anyway. So that's where we need to be thinking. But in the smaller communities, if there is, you know, the shit hits the fan major, let's say these ass clowns keep doing the stupidity that they're doing, and we go through a Weimar Republic, 
uh, which if you don't know what the Weimar Republic is, that was between World War One and World War Two, where Germany did exactly what we're doing now. They were so punished and put so deeply into debt after World War One that they tried to solve their debt problem by printing more money. And they kept doing it to the point where you needed a wheelbarrow full of German marks, a wheelbarrow full, to buy one sack of potatoes. Let's say that happens here. Eventually, people are going to want to put things back together. Now, as things are being rebuilt, you want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. And a lot of times, again, people say that I'm overly optimistic about society putting itself back together. But it always has, no matter how bad the things have been burnt to the ground, it's always rebuilt a society. Why? Because that's what we as humans do. We are communal creatures. We seek each other's company. There's very few successful hermits out there. Very few of them. In fact, you know that the human population went through a bottleneck at one time. A bottleneck where there were well under 10,000 human beings left on the planet. In fact, it may have been under a 1,000 human beings. That's what some geneticists think. Under a thousand. And this isn't like in the beginning when, you know, the human race was small and frail. This was after there were, you know, a global population over a million. And something happened, they're not even sure what. But they can look into genetic code and they can track us back to this bottleneck. And whatever that was, society rebuilt itself. The great wars in Europe, society rebuilt itself. We dropped nuclear bombs on Japan. Society rebuilt itself. Bubonic plague ravaged the place for centuries. Killed off a massive number of the Earth's population. Society rebuilt itself. That's what people do. They put societies back together. And frankly, if we weren't going to do it, what are you preparing for? To just hold on until a little bit longer than everybody else? So you can go out in the end? No. You do this because, generally speaking, you're looking to be able to bridge a gap between a period of time when there are support systems available and they go away and until they begin to return. And that could be as little as a week and it could be as long as two or three years. We have to, we have to slowly get ourselves into a position where we're prepared for either extreme. And expect the best and prepare for the worst. Very simple methodology. But you've got to be able to be part of the solution. And to me, gardening is a huge part of that. That's why I put so much emphasis on it. There's a lot of things that grow really fast. You can grow radishes in less than a month. They'll grow damn near any part of the year. Um, a lot of the lettuces and things, as soon as they're you know an inch or two high, you start cutting them. So have a huge supply of the seeds that will grow fast at any time of the year. Shit hits the fan, start handing them out to neighbors. Give them seeds. Say, look, you don't have the best grand, that's okay. Go dig a little patch this big, put these seeds in there. As they start growing, start cutting the greens off one at a time. All right? Um, have, have a potato patch. Uh, as much of the year as you can grow potatoes wherever you are. I have limits here because it's so hot, but grow as many potatoes as you can. It's a starch. It's a huge value in food. Um, and then in your storage, make sure you're including those long-term storables like beans and rice, pastas. Uh, with all of that going for you and some fresh vegetables out of the garden, you can get by pretty good in just about any scenario that we can think of. The next one is, with all this talk about being a good part of your community and helping it rebuild and taking care of your neighbors, you might think I'm a little bit lapsed on security. I'm absolutely not lapsed on security. Uh, when my neighbor would come by to get that little... Uh, uh, outlay of corn uh, that uh, that I would be giving them. There'd probably be a, a Remington 870 on sling on my back with a whole bunch of bucks shot uh, down the sling. Um, my 45 on my side. My wife would be armed. I would be doing two things without actually having to threaten anybody. Um, one, I would be making sure that if the intentions were ill, that I have a method to send the uh, the ill-meaning party back out the door horizontal if necessary. And then the second thing I'm doing is I'm letting the people that I'm helping know, yes, there is help here. 
But there is also guns here. There are people that mean to take care of what they have. They want your neighborhood to be safe. They want you to be safe. But they're not pushovers. You're not going to be able to just go take from them. And I think that's an important message to send early on in a disaster scenario. And you have to have procedures for almost like a threat level. Okay, so the ass clown driver knocked all the power out in the neighborhood. Um, the neighbors aren't really going to be the problem, but if the, the, the blackout's big enough, um, burglary and theft have a higher propensity to happen during a blackout. That's uh, so when people go steal stuff. Uh, they also have, if you're closer to an urban center, a higher propensity for things like riots. So you ratchet the security up a level. Maybe that means that there's a weapon on hand of every adult in the home or child of you know gun-bearing age in the home at all times. Maybe you don't go that far. You set your own threat levels and your own responses. But my, my, my uh, message is you have to have a hard fa- fixed rule. At this occurrence, we move up to here and this is what that means. And when that happens, everybody does what they're supposed to do. Definitely during a blackout, there's a knock on the door. You don't just open the door. Even if you think you know who's out there, that's good procedure anyway. right? You don't open the door when somebody's says it's the police, unless you see proof that it's the police. Any police officer that's not willing to hold up a badge for you is not a police officer. And there's no good reason for them to be coming to your door during a dark blackout anyway, unless you've asked them to show up. So you should be highly skeptical of anybody that knocks on the door in the dark. If you have a backyard that normally you have gates, but they're not locked, maybe the security protocol is we're upping things, there's locks going on the gate now. I don't know what your protocols are, but I am telling you to have them, and I am telling you to make sure that everybody's familiar with them, and I'm telling you to make sure that everybody follows them, and about the only way you can make sure that's going to happen is occasionally you have to drill this. And it doesn't have to be um, a long drill. It could be, okay, we're going to do a 20-minute drill of security level 2. Everybody go do what you're supposed to do. Just see what happens. You know, pause the Game Boy or the Nintendo, Johnny. Uh, Pause the football game, Dad. Uh, Put down the the cooking spoon, Mom, whatever. Let's just do this. Let's just see how... Because it's going to never happen when everybody's... You don't schedule it, right? You schedule it, eh. You know, you don't get to schedule your emergencies. And just see, where are the holes? And that's a good thing to do overall with all of this, is to run drills. Camp in your backyard once in a while. You know, have a weekend where you turn all the TVs off, all you have is a small transistor radio, nobody can leave the house, you play games, you cook food on the grill, you talk to your neighbors, see if you can get some neighbors to do it with you. You'll actually enjoy yourself, but you'll find the holes in your preps. But more importantly, you'll acclimate the family to the experience. So that if ever does really happen, I've sort of been through this before. We got through it when it was a drill. We'll get through it now. The military's huge on this. I didn't get a lot of my survival knowledge from the military. But this is one of the things I've really taken to heart, is that the drill is one of the most important things you can do for anything that you may ever have to actually initiate. It, again, the, it's the acclimation of things. Uh, you're in a combat deployable unit. They run drills off it. You get all your gear. You, sometimes when we used to do this in Panama, we'd get on helicopters, and we'd start flying toward you know the, the northern or so, southern border or out to sea. And we had no idea whether it was real world or a drill sometimes. Sometimes we knew, sometimes we didn't. Turn the helicopters around and fly back. The one time we were up in the air for about 45 minutes, and we were pretty convinced we were going somewhere. And the whole purpose of those type of things is, if it ever really happened, okay, it's not my first time I've ever got on a helicopter in a dark night, got all my combat gear, and was uh, expecting to end up somewhere. In fact, uh, when we went to Honduras, we sort of handled it that way. Uh, the vehicles were shipped ahead of us on ships, uh, but we flew in on military aircraft. We went into a military convoy. We went into a defensive security posture. We sandbagged the floors of the vehicles. Uh, we had 50 cows mounted up on all the cargo trucks. Uh, we had front and rear security. Uh, we had MPs on the on the outside, combat engineers on the inside. Uh, 
It was like a tactical movement. And there was no need for it. There was absolutely no threat that anybody was aware of at that time going into that part of Honduras. It was a pretty boring place to be, honestly. Um, But what the Army said is, okay, these are combat engineers. They're not going on a combat mission. But if we send them on a, a mission that's not combat, and they go through the procedures, we can critique it, find the weaknesses and improve it, and we'll acclimate them to the experience. So if we do have to send these men into harm's way, it's not their first rodeo, so to speak. And all I'm saying is you need to do some drills in your house, especially with your security protocols and security procedures. By the way, you should have security protocols and procedures in place in your home right now, even when nothing goes wrong. Because there are people that want to steal what you have. There are people out there that rape children, that rape women. And and guys, there's, there's people out there that are sick that rape men. All of this stuff happens. And if you get a million people in one place, two or three percent of them are scum. And that's true across all demographics. If it's just general people off the street, it's true. Even when it's law enforcement or soldiers or priests, there is a tiny portion of our population that is scum, and they have every job, including no job at all, that there is in the world. And you have to be prepared for those people on a daily basis. So, like I said, that means to me, if you are a concealed carry holder, what do you do when you get home? You just leave your gun on. You carry it all around every day. Why put it away? Why put it somewhere where you have to get to it? Um, If you are not a concealed carry holder, um, uh, permit holder, that doesn't mean you can't carry in your home. And maybe you carry in your home and not outside because the law won't let you. But you're actually more likely to be a victim of a crime in your home, in many instances, than out on the street anyway. Well, there's no net, there's no need to have a concealed carry permit in most places to have a handgun on your person on your property inside your house. That's your prerogative. Again, with the guns, please get training if you don't have it. You have to be safe. Don't be like Plaxico and shoot yourself in the leg, that idiot. Now, there are some places, there's a lot of challenges being issued, where you, it's hard to even own a handgun in your own home. Uh, but other than that, most places have, there's, and, and who would know anyway? All right? But if somebody breaks in my house, I, I don't want to be like, hey, wait a minute, let me run upstairs and get the gun out of the gun safe. I want to be like, bang, go on, go out. Wrong house. So there should be security protocols and procedures in place at all times, and there should be kind of a threat-increased level. And there should be a point where all doors are down, no one goes outside the door without a gun, no one goes outside the door alone. There should be a threat level that's that high. And I know it sounds like overkill to some of you guys that aren't, that aren't really you know, familiar with kind of the tactical side of this stuff, but there, there are times when things get that dangerous. L.A. during the riots was definitely that level of security protocol if you were anywhere where these riots were taking place. It was that bad. Parts of South Florida during Hurricane Andrew were definitely that bad. Hurricane Katrina, no question. And the feds came in and took people's guns away. And that should have been the time where people were encouraged to be armed. And it's, it's nonsense that they took people's guns away. Because when Hurricane Andrew happened, um, they didn't even think about taking guns from people. Uh, people got up on rooftops and defended neighborhoods. And there were a few people shot in that storm's aftermath. And it's all it took. That was, that was what kept things in check with Andrew. A few homeowners that decided, you know what, you're not leaving with my neighbor's big screen. And uh, I think one guy was shot and killed, and another guy was shot in the leg and wounded. And when um, basically the, uh, the the county sheriff down there said, hey, you know what, don't loot, uh, it stopped. So there's times for that level of security protocol. Um I think another thing you have to be prepared to do, okay, something's happened, I'm going to bug in. If it's a big event, you need to have that 
documentation package that we talk about keeping in your car for bugging out with the contact information of every single person that you might ever want to get in touch with. At the decision that we're bugging in, it's probably a good idea while communications are available, considering that they may become unavailable in the near future, to contact everybody on that list, tell them what you're doing, where you're going to be, and any information that you have for them immediately. Don't believe oh, you know, I can do that tomorrow, because tomorrow the phone may not work. Tomorrow the cellular networks may not work if we're going into that type of a major catastrophe. Or they may work for them, your friends and family that are three states away, but they may not work for you. And if it's something localized, they may be you know, going very nuts trying to figure out if you're okay. And if you don't communicate with them, let them know that you have a plan, let, you know, let them know that you're okay, they may come try to find you. And they may put themselves in harm's way when you're perfectly safe because you're prepared. So I think that you need to have a plan in place, the information in place and a decision in your head that should this happen, you're going you're gonna to go down that contact list and tell everybody, hey, look, we're fine. We're staying put. Here's our plan. If communications go down, these are some alternate ways maybe that we can try to get a hold of you. Um, but don't worry about us. We'll let you know if we need anything. It's important. Because you don't want it on your conscience that Uncle Ray decided that you might be in harm's way, came to help you, got killed by a mob, and you were fine kicked back, eating some biltong, uh, maybe cooking on the grill, and you were perfectly safe, but you just couldn't communicate anymore. So initial communications have got to be ASAP, as soon as possible. Um, when the disaster strikes, if you know that it's going to be anything more than a day or two, I don't care how prepared you think you are, you, you, one of the first priorities you would need to do is take an inventory of everything that you have in the home that's useful. And if it's going to be long term, you really need to inventory those lists into absolute needs, the things that are going to keep you alive, the things that are really good to have, and the things you could absolutely really not care about um, long term to sustain your life. And those immediately become barterable. If somebody wants to trade with you that third, that third list of items, that's the first thing you do. You hand them a list and go, here's some stuff we have. You don't put it all on one sheet of paper, right? Here's some stuff we have. Is there anything on that list that you're interested in? What do you have? See, the way you be a good trader is that you're prepared to trade before the people that you're going to trade with show up. So long-term scenario, barter may become very important. Um, then you maybe you're really nice to have stuff that you don't absolutely need. Then maybe you say, well, we also have some other stuff that we would be interested in if they have something you really need. You also need the inventory not just to prepare for barter, but to start controlling your own use of your items. Maybe you've convinced yourself that you have 90 days worth of food stored up. But without an inventory, you won't know that. Now, you should have kind of a running inventory of your food storage anyway. But at this point, you know, we're bugging in. This could be a long-term event. You need to know exactly what you have. And you need to start allocating it. We're going to use this much each day, and how far are we really going to be able to go? And are we using too much each day? How can we extend it? you got to take an inventory immediately. It's what any military unit would do. And it's because you're taking an accountability of the necessities that are available. And you're determining your sustainability based on those items. And you're going to do everything you can then to tweak and increase that sustainability as it is necessary uh, to do. So, again, inventory everything at the point that you decide you're going to stay put. And having running inventories is often a good idea. And I think it makes sense maybe once a year to sit down and inventory everything and justify it against what you think you have as as just practical preparation as well. The next one is try to keep lines of communication open as long as possible. And not just to that list of people that I said to contact right away. Um... It makes a lot of sense if you live in a place where you can pick up television signals uh, with uh, antennas 
to have a small TV to use with that backup power source, something that's very low draw, because you can get a lot of useful information from TV stations. And in a lot of situations where maybe everybody around you is without power, uh, a, a TV station may still have power. They have backup power. They have a lot of redundancies that we don't, and they will keep broadcasting. Same with radio. If you're a ham, uh, you have another line of communication. Often in disasters, it's hams that go in and set up emergency communications until standard lines are restored. Um, small radios like MERS, uh, FRS, GMRS can be used in the community family level, and they're very useful as well if we're in a situation with cellular networks and primary phones are down. So all of those things should be taken into account. I also think on communications, it's where you start to think about some things like some code words for the family. Um, you should have a code word that means that even though I'm telling you everything's okay over a phone or whatever, I'm under duress. I've got a problem here. Uh, you should have a code word um, that, that immediately says everything's okay. So maybe you end up in a situation where, I don't know, it looks like uh, you're being held up or roughed up or something, but what you want is you want your family to back off. You don't want them to respond. The situation, you've you've got a better understanding of it. So you should have a standoff code word as well. Um, And you keep that information very, very secure. That's family and trusted uh, community uh, friend members that you have real agreements with about this type of thing. The close to the vest stuff, those are the only people that get that information. And I think that you take that as far as you feel you need to. But there should be a way that if uh, you're on the phone and your wife says, Honey, everything's okay, that there's a word that if she says it, you know everything is not okay. And your ears go up, you're immediately listening for any clue that she can get away with giving you. Or man versus fuck, man could be the guy under duress. I'm not being sexist with any of this. But it's very, very possible. It's also possible that, uh, you know... You're in a scenario where it looks like you're under duress and you're not. Those are two very important code words, I think, uh, that you need to have. That you would normally not use in conversation, but you can work them in. Last one today on this topic, and this is a deep topic. We'll probably talk about it more uh, in some coming shows. But I think it's very important, especially with children in the household, with all this scary talk about security procedures and feeding neighbors and riots and the darkness, to try to maintain some sense of normalcy, Um, both during the event and planning for the event to maintain normalcy. Things like board games and cards. Cheap, easy, go by goodwill. You can buy as many board games as you want for next to nothing if if you're, you're strapped for cash. Having a few board games that you can play with all the pieces, so that when you go pull them out, they actually are usable. Um, that helps occupy minds. Um, including maybe a big uh, a box full of some cheap uh, word puzzles and things like that. I know I, I hate crossword puzzles and word searches. I really don't like them. But when my wife was in the hospital several years ago, an intensive care for a couple of days, and I just stayed at the hospital with her, I couldn't work on anything. I couldn't think about anything. But I also couldn't just sit there, so I did a lot of those. And they helped pass the time, and they helped keep my mind active, and they helped, you know, I could be there, and I could zone out, but yet I still had something to engage myself with. So things like that. Um... Try to be careful with your language around the children in uh, higher security situations, especially younger children that really can't do anything to help with security levels. Again, this might be a good place for some code word usage. It's not for operational security, but for childhood normalcy and peace of mind. You know, you might have, um, instead of saying that when you go out you need to have your gun on, we're being a little extra careful Right or something like that means that you, that's your phrase that hey we're we're kind of taking things up a notch, but try to keep things normal for the kids and that a lot of that is making sure you're prepped for your pets like I started out with. Kid has his dog or his cat. There's a huge sense of normalcy that that brings. It's also another big reason to bug in if it's possible and if it's the right thing to do. If you bug in, a kid has his bedroom. He has his toys. 
he has his familiar surroundings. If there's some level of community activity still going on, maybe there's even the ability to have friends, uh, at least for some portion of the day. Uh, at least they know that Johnny's three houses away and he's home too. All of these things, especially for younger children, we're talking 10 and under or even up to early teens, really, really helpful in allowing them to feel that things are going to be okay. Even if you're not sure they are, there's no reason to put that level of fear and stress on your children. So trying to maintain that normalcy. And that's important for adults, too. You're talking some of these disasters can strain relationships of good friends that have agreed to partner up in these. They can strain spousal relationships. The more normalcy you can keep, the more optimistic you can be, the better your attitude's going to be, and the more successful you're going to be at dealing with any situation that comes your way. And I know we're talking about some scary stuff here today. I mean, you know, we're, we're, we're getting real here with some of the things that could go on and some of the things that we would be asked to do in these scenarios. But that's why we do all this. Survival planning isn't just a way to feel good about yourself. Um, It does that. It's extremely positive in your life. It has so many great effects, even when nothing goes wrong. The prepper has a better life. Today, tomorrow, and and, and the next day, no matter what comes their way, including absolutely nothing coming their way. But in the end, it's because really dark, scary times can come. And we have to be ready for them, as ready as we can be, as prepared as we can be, and as logical as we can be about it. And if you start to ask yourself these questions and run these mental simulations, what would I do if... Vehicle drives by. Attention, this is the government. Your area is under lockdown quarantine. Go to your homes. No one may leave this neighborhood. Further instructions will be coming. And you know how long that's going to last. And instead of being like Billy Badass and saying, Bullshit, they ain't going to keep me here. You actually know why it's happening. And it's because there's a major disease threat out there. I don't know if it's bioterrorism, natural, man-made, doesn't matter. But it's something that when you get it, it kills you dead. And going out, you're really risking things. What the hell would you do? You have to ask these questions. You have to deal with the discomfort once in a while because it will lead you to the answers today before you need them. So while everything is available to you, while the grass is still green and the grasshoppers are fiddling and farting around and that big old storm cloud of winter is coming and going to freeze their ass to death, that's when you take the activity level of an ant and you prepare for that winter. Because sooner or later, a winter will enter your life. It might be personal. A job loss. Loss of a family member. Damage to your home. It might be neighborhood. It might be regional. It might be the big shit hit the fan that we all worry about one day. You don't know what it's going to be. But there's winters in every life. And what we talk about here, whether we're planning on bugging in, planning on bugging out, evacuation planning, self-sufficiency planning for your life, becoming less dependent on the systems, uh, paying off debt, it doesn't matter. All of it is about when that winter comes, being able to get through it better than you would have if you weren't prepared. That's really what it's all about. So start running these mental simulations in your mind. Start thinking, what would we do? Run some drills. Make sure that you have procedures in place. Make sure that you have a rough inventory at all times of what's around. Be prepared to get an exact inventory. Talk to your neighbors. When something small and short-term happens, share what you've done to prepare, at least a small piece of it, with them. Use it as an opportunity to reach out into your community. To explain, this is why you should have a generator too, Tom. Yeah, I'll bring my generator over and run your freezer for you for two hours a day because I know the power is going to be back on in, in, in three days or less, and I can afford to do that, but I won't always be able to do that. Maybe you need to go get one. They're not that expensive, right? Use the opportunities of the small disasters to get people ready for the bigger disasters. That's when, that's when it makes sense to people. You want to see generator sales go up right after a hurricane hits. And I don't mean all the people that run out and get one like, and, and uh, what do you like, like, stuff. 
you know, right when, right before, and, and right after when the stores open up and power's not back on yet, and there's five generators left in town and they're all gone in 15 minutes. No, I'm talking about three, four weeks later when people's got their roofs back. You know, roofs are going back on houses and and everything's flowing again. Generator sales go through the roof because people say, "Hey, look, it happened once; it could happen again. We're not going to do this again. We're going to be like Fred. Fred had a you know, he had an AC running in his house." We're going to do that next time. So use those opportunities. Use the mental simulations internally. Make sure you have protocols in place. And with that, I'm going to go ahead and sign off today. This has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life in times get tough, or even if they don't. It really doesn't matter because it all gets spent.